Well, if you have your sermon notes and you're here in person, pull those out. If you are online, pull those up. We are in our second sermon in our sermon series that we've been calling uh, Apology Accepted. My name is Todd Schlechty. I am the transitional lead pastor. Glad to be here with you this morning. This uh, sermon series touches on one of the most important aspects in loving other people. As we love other people, one of the things that's essential is that we learn how to apologize. Because every relationship is going to have failures and difficulties and wrongs in there. And not knowing how to apologize breaks down those relationships, tears away the intimacy of them, keeps us from loving others the way that we were created to do so. We're following along this book by Gary Chapman and Jennifer Thomas. In this book, Gary Chapman and Jennifer Thomas is called The Five Languages of Apology. They make this claim that there are different ways that people interpret apologies. There's different languages through which people understand what a sincere apology is. And sincerity is the key to an effective apology. This is what we started talking about last week. Um, if, if I say to you, I'm sorry, and you need to hear from me saying, I messed up. I want to change. Please forgive me. That I'm sorry is going to fall short, isn't it? Right? If, if Let's pretend you go to a restaurant, and in the restaurant you order, this happened to my wife and a friend of hers the other week, uh, they went to a restaurant. My wife's friend was drinking club soda, and uh, along comes the waiter after a while and fills her half-drank club soda glass up with water. She said, oh, oh, no, I'm drinking club soda. And of course, the waiter said, oh, I'm sorry, and then left. <laughs> Did she feel like that was an appropriate apology? No, she needed restitution. She needed him to say, I'm, uh, let me go get you another one. I'm sorry about that. You know, when, when we wrong, and a lot of you guys know this because you're married, when we wrong somebody like a spouse and we say, I'm sorry, it doesn't, it doesn't, for a lot of people, it's not enough. And so in this book, uh, Gary Thomas uh, explains what he considers the five love, five languages of apology. The first one is expressing regret. This is what we talked about last week. This is saying, I'm sorry. This is what Pastor John explained to us last week. The good news about expressing regret, saying I'm sorry, is that it works about 20% of the time. Man, not all the time, but sometimes when you've wronged somebody, you just say, I'm sorry, I sincerely apologize, I'm sorry. That's enough. That, 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 they hear that as that is sincerity. But unfortunately, it doesn't work most of the time and in most situations. If your girlfriend feels like you've wronged her somehow and you say, I'm sorry, when she needs you to say, I'm going to change, that's not going to sound like an appropriate apology. The second language of apology is accepting responsibility. That sounds like I was wrong. I was wrong. That's what we're going to talk about today. And for a lot of us, saying I was wrong is really hard. And so I want to give you a chance to practice this. Turn to somebody around you, especially if you came with them, and look at them and say, I was wrong. Say that right now. Turn around to somebody and say, I was wrong. About half of you did that, it sounded like. We want to make sure everybody knows how to do this. This is the point of today's message. So turn to somebody, if you didn't do it, and 
honestly actually say, I was wrong. I was wrong. We're going to practice how to do that today because that's really important. A lot of our relationships will not be fixed. A lot of the wrongs in our relationships cannot be healed. A lot of relationships cannot reach the level of intimacy that we long for until we learn how to say, I was wrong. Let's go through the rest. The third, which we're talking about next week, third language of apology is making restitution, which sounds like, what can I do to make this right? You go to a restaurant, you get the wrong order. This is what you need. You need them to come and say, what can I do to make it right? I'll go back to the back. I'll fix it right now. We weren't supposed to put cheese on the burger. I'll go and make you a new one. It'll be fine. If they only say, sincerely apologize, that's our bad. Good luck. Not going to feel like enough. You got to have restitution. Number four, genuinely repenting. I'll try not to do that again. We all need to learn how to do that, especially if you're married. Genuinely repenting. I'll try not to do that again. And then the fifth, and we're closing this series in three weeks with this one, requesting forgiveness. Will you please forgive me? Will you please forgive me? Like I say, all of these are part of a language we need to learn. We can never have the relationships we want without learning this language of apology. We, our, our relationships will, will only go to a certain level of intimacy, and they can never go deeper because there's some, there's some perceived wrong in our relationship if we don't learn how to speak the language of apology. All of this is about learning how to love others better. Our mission here at Christ Church is to love God, love others, and live out the gospel life. And part of loving others is learning how to, this week, take responsibility, accept responsibility for your actions, learning how to say, I was wrong. It's in the Bible. Apologizing is in the Bible. You can see Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5, 23 through 26. And so I want to read what Jesus has to say about the impact of apologizing. It, it says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly. Jesus says, don't wait. You know, why allow your relationship to get worse? Why allow your relationship to blow up in a, in a worse way? Do it quickly. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, the way to court, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge of the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. Je Jesus is saying you can't, you can't fix this relationship with God without being willing to work on this relationship with other people. And of course, we know we're saved by grace. We know that Jesus died on the cross and took our sins and our pain on, on him, our death on him on the cross. We know that God first loved us. But, but the scripture is saying that we can't fully respond in this loving relationship with God if we're not willing to deal with the person next to us. John says in 1 John, how can you love the God who you don't see if you don't love your brother who's standing right in front of you? And part of loving those who stand right in front of us is learning how to say, I was wrong. So I've been asking myself, why is it so wrong, so hard to say I was wrong, you know? 
mean, it should be easy for us as Christians. We know we are wrong, right? When we come to faith, we confess, I'm a sinner. When we come to faith, we say, God, please forgive me. When we come to faith, we say, God, help me change, right? I was wrong. So why is it so hard for us to admit that to the people closest to us? Why is it so hard for me to tell my wife I was wrong? Why is it so hard to tell my children I was wrong? Why is it so hard to tell my boss I messed up, I was wrong? Why is it so hard for us to say I was wrong? In, in the book, um, Gary Chapman explains three reasons that he thinks that it's hard for us to say I was wrong. One, he says, is immaturity. The first reason he says it's so hard for people to say I was wrong is immaturity. Children, he says, have a tough time saying I was wrong. If you, if you go to a child and you say, uh, little Billy, did, did you just hit Mary? You know, what, what's little Billy going to say? She hit me first, right? She called me a name. What was I going to do, right? Little Johnny, did you steal Sally's train? It was my train. She took it from me. The children learn to project this estrangement in the relationship to the other person. And it's a, it's a sign of immaturity. I, tell you the truth, I've learned how to do this pretty well as well. Sometimes my wife will say to me, you've got to stop doing this. And what will I say? Well, what about this? Well, what about you, right? You did this. In fact, I've got a list in my mind that I can go to at any time, right? Well, you, you did this last week. What about last year when you did this? And what about your mom? I don't even want to bring her into this, you know? It's immaturity. It's, it's Yes, there may be issues on the other side, but we'll never fix the relationship if we can't say, Yes, I took the train. I was wrong. I'm sorry. The second thing that makes uh, saying I was wrong hard is scripting. A lot of us as children never had people demonstrate to us how to say I was wrong. Maybe your parents never told you I was wrong. Maybe you never heard a teacher or a boss tell you I was wrong. And if you're not going to find it in, in, in popular media or in politics... Politicians are about the worst at saying I am wrong, right? The, the most famous politicians, even the best communicators like Bill Clinton or, or uh, Donald Trump, you never hear them say, that's on me, I did that, I was wrong. And so we have this sense in which we're scripted to not ever go there. Don't ever admit it. Some of us were overly harshly treated as children sometimes by parents or authority figures, sometimes by bullies or other people in our classes. And so we, we're scared to ever admit, yeah, that's true, I did that. And so we, we always are trying to say, well, that's, that, that didn't happen. Not like that. No, it wasn't like that. No, it was their fault. And it's because of scripting. The third reason that it's hard to say I'm, I'm wrong, according to uh, Gary Chapman, is perceived weakness. We believe that if I admitted I did that, I will look weak. If my wife comes to me and says, now you keep saying you're going to do this at the house, but you don't do it. If I say, yeah, that's true. I'm not good at following through with my word. That makes me look bad, doesn't it? I don't want her to think that about me. 
If, if my boss comes to me and says, hey, you keep saying that you're going to show up to the meetings on time, but every week you're late, I don't want to say, yeah, I have a real problem with tardiness, right? I don't want my boss to think that about me. Guess what? They already think that about you. That's why they're coming to you. Your spouse already thinks you messed up, right? Your boss already, that's why they're calling into the office to have the conversation with you. You don't lose anything by admitting what is already true and they already know. But we're afraid that we will be perceived as weak. And so we want to just keep denying, keep deflecting, keep blaming. As a kid, a lot of us are taught that just saying I'm sorry is enough. In, in kindergarten, when uh, you and another little child got in trouble, a lot of times the teacher would come over and I'll just talk about myself and say, Todd, did you take Billy's train? And I say, well. And they say, okay, well, you need to say you're sorry. I'm sorry, Billy. Billy, now you need to say, Todd, you're forgiven. Todd, you're forgiven. Now it's over. And we're taught from the time we're little that that is an apology. I'll say I'm sorry, you say you forgive me, and it's over. But for a lot of people, it's not over. And in our most important relationships, that doesn't fix it. Very often, that does not fix it with your spouse. That does not fix it with your kids. That does not fix it with your parents, sometimes even with your neighbors. And a lot of times, that doesn't fix it with the people closest to you. For a lot of these relationships, we have to go on and own our responsibility. We have to say, I was wrong. You can see in the scripture, I think the most famous I was wrong in the Bible is David, King David. If I thought about this week, I thought about who, who said I was wrong in the Bible, and the first person that came to mind in my mind, was David. You probably know the story about King David. King David was the most important king in the history of Israel. He was also a man of great faith and known as a man after God's own heart. He was also a great musician and wrote half of the Psalms in the Bible. He was also a great military leader and killed Goliath when he was just a young man and, and led the army out in all of these decisive battles. David was loved and esteemed and seen as spiritual and powerful. Late in his life, David, if you remember the story, didn't used to go out to battle with the army when the army went out to battle. When he was young, he did, but when he was older, he stayed at the palace. And one day he was at the palace and he was up on his roof and he was looking over Jerusalem and he saw a beautiful lady in the house next door up on the roof bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. He calls her over and he ends up sleeping with her and she gets pregnant and trying to figure out how to cover this up. He didn't want to say, I was wrong. And so he decides to cover this up by asking Uriah, who's one of his soldiers, but also married to Bathsheba, to come back from the front so that he'll visit Bathsheba and this pregnancy will be erased, overlooked, explained away. The problem is, is Uriah is too honorable as a man. He won't leave uh, his uh, comrades in battle, in the lurch, and he goes back to the front and he doesn't stay with his wife. And so David has to think of another way to cover up this sin. Why? Because he doesn't want to say, I was wrong. And so he tells Joab, who's the general, 
to put Uriah at the very front of the battle, right where it's the most fierce. And then right when the battle's raging, to have all the other troops pull back from him so he'll die in battle. That's exactly what happened. Not only he died in battle, but a battle was lost and Israel was defeated. And several other innocent people who knew nothing about this were killed. Well, David thought it was worth it. His sin was covered up. He didn't have to admit he was wrong. He didn't have to look weak, you know. He felt like this was done. He wasn't proud of it. And who could be proud of this? But it's done. It's over. It's great. But somebody knew. And that somebody was God. And God told Nathan the prophet. And Nathan came to David. And Nathan told David this story about this wealthy man who had all these flocks of sheep. But went and stole the one little ewe lamb from his neighbor who was so poor. And took it and killed it and fed it to his friends for a banquet. And David was like, that guy's going to die. I mean, that, that is not acceptable. This is where it picks up in 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 9. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who appointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul, the former king. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Amnon. Think about that. If you were in that situation, how would you react? You're the most powerful man in Israel. You're the most popular man in Israel. You're perceived as one of the most spiritual men in Israel. You're sitting on the throne and Nathan the prophet's standing before you and Nathan's pointing the finger at you and saying, you're the man. How do you respond? A lot of us, a lot of kings in the world would have said, Nathan, who do you think people are going to believe? You or me, right? I think I can win this one. A lot of us would have just done to Nathan what we did to Uriah, right? Just, just get rid of him. Just cover it up. Just, just don't let him speak. Just put him away someplace. Maybe in today's world, a politician might have just tried to explain it away. Nathan, I don't know if you really understand exactly what happened. Let me explain it to you. War is ugly. I don't know if you even understand war. I've been at the front. I know what it's like. Uh, we, I, I, we can't really even know what happened, but Uriah died. That's just going to happen, you know. I, uh, now, Bathsheba, I didn't even really know she was married at the time. You know that? And, and it really just depends on how you look at this situation. There's lots of ways to explain it. I don't think you understand. A lot of us would have just gotten into explaining this thing away. But look at, look at David's response. This is in verse uh, 12, chapter 12, verse 13. It says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, i.e., I was wrong. David, he recognized his responsibility. He accepted his responsibility. David said, I was wrong. And because of that, David was able to stay on his throne. David was able to be forgiven of his sin by God. There was tons of consequences in his children's life and in his life. But David was forgiven because he could say, 
I was wrong. James says this in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 16 of James. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. We can never have full healing in our life until we're willing to say, I was wrong. We can never have complete healing in our relationships, in the most important relationships of our lives, until we're willing to say, I was wrong. That's on me. I'm sorry. I did it. Loving others requires that we accept responsibility. Loving others requires that we say, I was wrong. Well, you look at that example and you say, well, yeah, sure, David accepts responsibility before God. It's not clear whether David ever said, I'm sorry, I was wrong to Bathsheba. I assume he did. It's not clear that he said it to the nation of Israel or to the troops that he put in harm's way because of his sin. I hope he did. I expect he did. But there's another story in Scripture that came to my mind of those who said I was wrong. And, and this is, in my mind, the second most famous Scripture of saying I'm wrong. It has to do with Joseph's brothers. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, and 10 of them sinned in a terrible way against one of them named Joseph. If you're not familiar with the story from the Old Testament, this is a lot of the second half of the book of Genesis. Jacob was the third patriarch in Israel. There was Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob married, it's super weird, it's a long explanation, but he married two wives, uh, who were sisters, Rachel and Leah, and then they both had him have children as uh, like surrogates with their maidservants. So Jacob ended up having 12 sons with four women. <laughs> not, not recommended. The Bible is not prescribing that. It's just describing that. And uh, as you can imagine, these two wives were rivals against each other, and so the sons became rivals. And ten of them, who weren't Rachel's children, turned on the one who was the favorite, Rachel's oldest son, whose name was Joseph. And ten of them hated him, because Joseph was the favored son of the favored wife, and the ten other sons turned against him. They, they used to make fun of him, they used to harass him, they threw him in a pit one day. They were going to kill him. But some of them had a little bit more uh, material desires. And they decided to, rather than kill him, to sell him to these traders who were going by as a slave and take the money. They explained to their dad that he died uh, by a wild beast. And, and so they sold him into slavery. Imagine this. He's just an adolescent, just a teenager, and he gets sold to these traders. They take him down to Egypt. They sell him as a slave. He grows up as an adolescent and young adult, as a slave, and then as a prisoner. He gets accused of something that's not his fault. He, uh, he, he's on a death row, but then God watches over him. Through this whole thing, somehow God protects him and, and, and works through him and does amazing things through him, and eventually he rises and becomes second in charge of Egypt. And during a great famine, because of his wisdom, his knowledge, because God is with him, ends up protecting the nation of Egypt with all of this bounty of food. So much so that this famine was also in Canaan land, and Joseph's brothers have to come down to Egypt to buy food. And through that whole process, it's a super long process in Genesis, Joseph ends up revealing himself that he's now this second in charge of Egypt to his brothers. 
And his brothers and his dad, Jacob, and the whole family end up moving down to Egypt and living in Goshen, real close to Joseph. And they're all reunited. It looks like on the outside, everything's great. Actually, it looks like a lot of our families. On the outside, it looks like everybody gets along okay. It looks like every, everybody's respected. Every, every, everything seems fine. From the outsider's perspective, from Pharaoh's perspective, the Egyptian's perspective, everything looks good in this family. But there was this serious harm, this wrong that was there that had never really been dealt with. Joseph's brothers never really resolved this with Joseph. And, and so at the end of Jacob's life, they realize, uh-oh, I wonder if Joseph's going to kill us now. This is what happens in Genesis 50, verse 15 through 20. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did him. They knew that they'd wronged him. It was 30 years ago, but they knew that that scar and that bitterness and that hatred even was still there in Joseph's heart. They could feel it in their own heart. They felt that conviction of we sold our brother into slavery and what he went through living far from his parents as a slave in his adolescence and they knew that that was wrong and so after Jacob was gone and all of a sudden they they realized we have to deal with this so they sent a message to Joseph saying your father charged before he died saying thus you shall say to Joseph please forgive I beg you the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. They put it in their father's tongue because they thought it would sound better to Joseph. But this is them saying, we wronged you. And now please forgive the transgressions of your servants, of the servants of God, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. That's restitution. They went further than just saying we were wrong. It's restitution. They said, we sold you into slavery, so now we'll be your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I am, for am I in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph's brothers knew they'd committed this great sin against Joseph. Joseph's brothers knew that it hadn't been healed. We're all living together. We're all holding hands. We're all acting like a family. But it's not right. There's still this wrong in my heart. There's there's still something that doesn't sit right. And so they go to him and they say, we did it. We were wrong. We're sorry. Tell us how we can fix it. We're going to be your slaves. We're going to do whatever you say. And you see Joseph's response? Verse 17, it says, When Joseph heard it, he wept. He heard him speaking and he just broke down. You you see, in order for there to be healing in some of the most important relationships in our life, it requires that, that we are willing to say, I was wrong. With our spouse, it requires that we go to her or him and say, I was wrong. I did it. I'm sorry. With our kids, it's important that we go to them at some point and say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I did it. 
sometimes with a boss, sometimes with a neighbor, sometimes with a good friend, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. We'll never get to the intimacy we want in our relationship. We'll never get to the relationship that we long for if we can't say, I was wrong. It's the only thing for a lot of people that can fix a broken heart, that can heal a broken marriage, that can heal a broken relationship. For a lot of us, saying I was wrong is the hardest thing we'll ever do. A lot of us, we're not good at this. Maybe it's immaturity. Maybe it's the way we raised. Maybe we never heard our dad or mom say I was wrong. Maybe it's because it hasn't worked in business. It hasn't worked at the job. And we see these politicians and they never do it. And we think, I'm, I've learned, never admit it. But in a relationship, it's killer. It's cancer. You'll never get to the level of relationship you want if you can't say, I was wrong. In my own life, I, I, I've, not, I've not been good at this. I, I imagine if you ask my wife if I'm good at saying I was wrong, she would tell you that she's heard me say I was wrong more in this sermon than in 29 years of marriage. And that's, that's not a good thing. But I'm trying to learn. A couple years ago, after COVID started, my my two girls had gone off to college. And when they went off to college, we thought we would never all five of us be back together again in, in our lives. Because the first year each of my daughters were at college, they came home like one or two days the entire year. And so we thought, okay, you know, good. We launched them. It's good. Um, but, uh, but COVID happened. And they last uh, March, two years ago, they both came back. And we were all together for like four or five months before my second daughter went back to Charlottesville. And it had been happening before that, some different things in my life. But during that time, I began to really feel this conviction that my relationship with my kids wasn't as close as I'd wanted it to be. And I really tried hard to be a good father when they were little, but I knew I'd made some mistakes and I knew there was some hurt there and adolescence is hard anyways. And, but the, the Holy Spirit was just convicting me. And, and so like on a retreat, I began to just kind of write down what I needed to say to them. Basically, it was a page and a half of I was wrong. I did this. I'm sorry. I messed this up. And, and before my second daughter went back to college, and then my first daughter went back to college, I had a chance to sit down with them, go out with them for a day, and just sit down with them and tell them how much they meant to me, but also to tell them I was wrong. I, I messed up. I'm sorry for these things. And just hear what it was going on in their lives. And, and I I'm not sure that everything's completely the way it should be with all my kids or that it's 100% healed. But I can tell you, it's come a long ways and it was essential that I be able to say, I'm sorry. More than I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'd said before, I'm sorry you feel this way. I'm, I'm sorry you don't recognize what a good dad I am. But they needed to hear me say, I messed up. I didn't do everything I wanted to do. I tried, but... I wasn't the dad I wanted to be in this situation. I was wrong. And I just tell you that to say, you're not going to have the marriage you want. You're not going to have the relationship with the, your kids that you want. You're not going to have the relationship with your parents that you want if you can't get to that place where you're able to go and say, that's on me. I'm sorry. I own that. I was wrong. Some things just are not going to be healed without you saying that. The, the main point here is that loving others means accepting responsibility. Loving others means saying, I was wrong. 
I encourage you this week to read through these doggy bag questions and to think about these. I'll just point out number four in particular right now. Is there someone that you need to apologize to right now? As we spend a moment in prayer and then we'll have a reflection song, I want you just to think about that. Is there somebody that I need to go to right now and say I was wrong? I, we're all a family here. We're about helping one another love God and love others and live this stuff out. If I can help you, Pastor John, if the other pastors have can help you, let us know. But I want to encourage you to think about who is there out there that needs to hear you say, I was wrong. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these moments we have to share together. Thank you for your word, the way that it convicts us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, the way you love us. Thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, that you loved us so much that you sent Christ to die for us, that Jesus took our sin on the cross with him, that, Lord, you healed our wounds. And, Lord, you who reconciled us to you have given us this ministry of reconciliation. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us through your Holy Spirit to know who those people are and what those situations are that we need to heal. That just like Joseph that a light bulb will go off in our head, in our hearts, that we'll feel your Holy Spirit's conviction and that we might know that we need to go to that brother, that sister, that parent, that child, and say, I was wrong. That like David, when we're convicted, when, when that person speaking for you stands before us and, and tells us what we did, that we're able to say, yeah, that's on me. I was wrong. And that you would heal and restore and redeem so that, Lord, we truly could love you. So, Lord, we truly could love others and live out this life that you have for us. And we pray this in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.